One of my great dreams is to be a preacher like Charles Haddon Spurgeon from a century ago in England. And I read a biography about him. And one day it said that he had gout so bad as he entered into the pulpit that he asked three men to come from the uh, uh, pews to uh, ask to hold him up in the pulpit so he could preach God's word because he felt that he would fall over in the pulpit. So he asked for two young men to come to each of its side. And then he asked for a stout man, and the biographer says he asked for a stout man to stand behind him because Spurgeon was not a small man, and they needed one who would be able to hold him up if he tried to fall. So if I ask anybody to come, we will need a stout man behind me. As you know, we have been in this series that we've entitled Redeeming Ruth, and we're going to be in it for the rest of the summer, and we're in week five looking at God's love to one who did not have anything that would give her favor in the eyes of a man by the name of Boaz. And we learn that Boaz is a type of Christ and Ruth is a type of us. Here we are, we're struggling with uh, needing favor in our lives and God comes to our rescue and gives us all that we need. And we've been learning about this all-out pursuit that God has for us. Now last week I talked about how the world goes after their dreams and their pursuits, and they do it as a result of hoping to find that their dreams will come true. They go and they pursue these things, hoping with pleasure and possessions and prestige of this world that their life would be different, that their life would be something better. And I taught last week the importance of us remembering that we do not find our dreams being fulfilled in pleasures or possessions or things like Money, But we find them in the favor of Almighty God. At the end of the message, I introduced you to one that I called the Dude of Dudes. In chapter 2 of Ruth, we have this man that enters into the text and his name is Boaz. And I told you that this man was a man of standing, verse 1 says. And he enters in and everything changes. In chapter 1, everything's going bad for Naomi and Ruth. But chapter 2... It all changes and the dark stormy clouds begin to go away and chapter 2 opens up. The text tells us if you look to Ruth chapter 2 that Ruth happens to fall into the uh, field of Boaz. She enters in and she's looking for a place to glean. They need food at the beginning of chapter 2, Naomi and Ruth. And what does she do? She goes and she, as a foreigner, begins to pick out a field where she would glean, get food, because she had no friends No family and no food in the place of Bethlehem being from Moab. So what does she do? She finds herself in a place of a field by the name, by a man by the name of Boaz. And we're going to learn more about Boaz this morning. So I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word. And we're going to start back at verse one. We looked at the first three verses of that text uh, last week. And we're going to look at these next 17 verses. So let's read as we learn what happens in chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. 
and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called out. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Verse 8 says, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. Now at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all that she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to the men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. Let's pray. Father God, you say that when we are weak, you are strong. And Father, I pray that that would be a fulfillment in my own life today. Father, I pray as we open your word, as we look at what you have shared by the giving of your Holy Spirit, that we would be a changed people. Father, that we would remember the all-out grace that you have given us. That we would know we are but foreigners. That we are people from a different land, yet you came and you gave us everything we've ever needed. So, Lord, we pray that that would be a reality today. That we, too, would find the grace that Ruth did in the fields that she was a part of. So, Father, we just pray your blessing upon your word and that your people will be blessed as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Ray Kinsella was an easygoing man who married his wife Annie, his high school sweetheart, and they found themselves buying a farm in Iowa. Now, Ray was a normal guy, and like many normal people, Ray had many troubles that would plague him. One of the greatest troubles that he had was that his father and him and his father's relationship would have been defined at best as turbulent. Now, Ray uh, found himself working in a farm. He became a farmer, but that was not his passion. Ever since being a young boy, baseball was all that he could think of. But he found himself having to pay the bills, so he found himself on a tractor in the middle of Iowa. And it seemed that as he went on through the rigmarole of, of the daily grind, he found himself watching his dreams move farther and farther away. 
And finding himself in this daily grind, a depression began to work over Ray, and he wasn't sure what to do. He knew something had to change. And one day out in his fields, as he was riding on a tractor, he heard a voice. And the voice said to him, if you build it, they will come. Ray didn't know what to make of this, but he was wanting to find out the meaning of this mysterious voice. If you build it, they will come. What, what do you want me to build and who will come? Well, with the meeting of some new friends, he began to understand that what he needed to do was to build a baseball diamond in the middle of his cornfield. And that's exactly what he did. He built what he called a field of dreams. If you're not a moviegoer, that is from the movie Field of Dreams that starred Kevin Costner. And that movie was filmed not not too far from here, a couple hours from here, in a city called Dyersville, Iowa, about 25 miles west of Dubuque. And I had the opportunity with Amanda to go to a wedding where we were sat at a table full of people from Dyersville, Iowa. And I began to talk with them, and they told us about all the tourists. Here's this small town of about 3,000 people, and yet it swells during the summer because tourists come from all four corners of the nation to see this baseball diamond in the middle of a cornfield. And they told me that it's not just baseball fans that go, not even sports fans, but all kinds of people, men, women, children, old and young, find themselves there. And I asked the question, why would someone make a vacation wrapped around going and seeing a baseball diamond in a cornfield? One of the gentlemen said, Tim, there is a sense that dreams are born and realized on that field in Dyersville. It's amazing. People come and it's their last ditch effort for something to change in their lives. And they come as if it's a shrine to some God that they would pray to and begin to ask that their problems or their troubles would be alleviated. I want to be honest with you and I want to make it very clear that we do not go to a baseball diamond, nor do we go to our credit cards, nor do we go to a job. Our dreams are fulfilled by the grace of God. And this is the second week that we are going to talk about this because what Ruth finds herself in is the field of God's dreams. Ruth finds herself being shown the unmerited favor of God. And out of this, I want to look very quickly at three key observations that we see in our text. Now, our text tells us, if you look at Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 4, that she finds herself gleaning in Boaz's field. Now, Ruth is hoping, remember in verse uh, 3, it says that she is hoping to find the favor of someone. Ruth is in some trouble. She's got no food. She's with her widowed mother-in-law. Then I don't have any kind of help or support in Bethlehem. And she needs to find someone who is going to help her in her time of need. Well, that's true for us as well. We find ourselves many times trying to find this field of dreams, whether it's in our walk with Christ Or within just the practical things of this world. Now, in the walk of Christ that we have, many times we want our life with Jesus to be a life of dreams coming true. We want production in our ministry. We want for God to take the trials of yesterday and to make them the triumphs of today. And we pray that God would shower His blessings upon us. I wasn't in here when you were singing, but I thought I heard the the song, Come Thou Fount of every blessing. We sing this. We want God to bless us. 
In fact, a couple of years ago, Bruce Wilkinson wrote a book about a man by the name of Jabez. And in Jabez's prayer, he says that God, he asked God to bless him, bless him in increasing his uh, territory and blessing him in ways unspeakable. And that's what we ask for. Whether we know it or not, we pray that God will bless us. But where do we find it? If it's not on a baseball field, if it's not with a job or in a certain marriage, where do we find it? I'm here to contend that we find that field of dreams right here, not just at Village Bible Church, but within the context of every local church. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 shares something about the church. It says that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God has taken this thing called the church, and he's brought all kinds of people into it, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he's bought them with a price, and he's brought them together to fellowship and to worship him and to serve him. And he says that I'm going to use this entity, this organism called the church, and I'm going to use it to reveal my manifold wisdom to not only you and I and the people of this world, but it says to even the angels, those that are in the heavenly realms. And that's what we see, because as we look at this field of dreams for Ruth, we see that the church needs to be a place of dreams as well. And there's three things quickly we want to look at. First of all, if we want to see God's field of dreams, then we must be a church that is a place of acceptance. It needs to be a place of acceptance. In verse 3 and 4, it tells us that Ruth is busy gleaning in Boaz's fields. And it uses the word that uh, it just then Boaz shows up. Now, this is a picture of God's providence again. Remember I said that it was God's providence that she finds herself in Boaz's field. Now, she could have picked any other field to be a part of, but she moves and she walks and makes a decision and God moves and directs her to pick Boaz's field. But then the providence gets even better because on that day, it says that Boaz shows up. The term just then in your NIV translation is found in the Hebrew in the aorist tense with an imperative mood wrapped around it. And what that's meaning is, is the author is wanting to grab our attention. The author is saying, pay attention, something is about to happen. One of the commentator, uh, contemporary commentators said of this verse that it would have been like a preview to a movie. That they would show all the great clips and all that to get your attention to say, come and watch this movie. What the author is saying is something great is about to happen. Something amazing. So keep reading. Don't stop now, but keep reading. Now we see that Boaz enters into the picture and we see him beginning to dialogue with his employees. Now we heard that he was a man of standing. And one of the reasons that he was a man of standing was that he was a man of great wealth. So Boaz rolls in, and Tim's translation would be that he rolls up in his SUV, whether it's an Escalade or a uh, Tahoe, whatever it would have been, he rolls up, take a look at his crew. And what does he see? He sees the guys working. And what is the first thing that he says? Now, it says that he speaks to them in verse 4, and he cries out to them, The Lord be with you. Now, they cry back. They're working in the fields, and they cry back and say, The Lord bless you. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Because that doesn't seem like that happens very often. Think about you're at your work tomorrow morning, whether you're in a cubicle or in the office or, or out in a truck, and your boss comes in just to roll in. He's got the clipboard in his hands. He's checking in on how the work is going. And he walks into a group of employees, and the first thing he says is, The Lord bless you. 
How many bosses would do that? I know why, because you don't have Boaz as a boss, but you got Bozo as a boss. You're not willing to admit it, but that's what Boaz says. He says, the Lord bless you. And I could just see all of you in your cubicles bouncing up at that point saying, the Lord bless you too, boss. It just doesn't seem to happen. But what we realize is, is that this place of acceptance, first of all, involves God honoring fellowship. It involves God honoring fellowship. What we see happening here is Boaz is speaking with his employees. We see that there's no yelling. There's no fighting. There is no kind of mention that Boaz is the boss and they're the employees. There's nothing about someone saying, well, I want this job or I want that job. There is just a community of fellowship taking place. Now, they speak blessing. This is an Old Testament blessing that's given, and Keith just spent some time with Josh and Debbie giving a blessing from Aaron to his children. And one of the things that we miss out in today's culture is the gift of blessings from one to another. Now, in the Middle Eastern culture, blessings are still a huge thing. Being a Middle Eastern child, my father has taught me the role of blessings in my life. When I was young, there were different times in my life my father would bring the family around and he would put his hands on us as boys and he would bless God's, or he would bless us with God's provision and God's love and God's protection and he would pray over us. There was a time when Amanda and I were about to be engaged and he put his hands on both of us and he prayed God's blessing over our new life together. Now, just even a year ago, our family, my brother was going through some trials with his family. Amanda and I were going through some trials. And my father felt this was an attack from the evil one. And he came as the patriarch of our family. And he brought all the little children together. And he blessed our family. And he said that the Lord would bless us, that the Lord would keep us, that he would pour out his love upon us. I want to contend this morning that we're not doing enough blessing in our families today. We're too busy. We're so busy running Sally and Joe to the different soccer games and volleyball games and the school events that we're not spending time praying and blessing our children. For those that are going to have their children leaving for college, I ask you, I plead with you, you pull that family around and you pray over that young one that's heading off to school. Take time. Stop, fathers. Be the, be the spiritual leaders that God has called you to be. And you put your hands on your family and you pray God's blessing over them. You may have been having difficulties. You may be having struggles. That's why even more you should be praying a prayer of blessing. Well, what does that mean for us in the church? What it's saying to us is that we need to be a people who blesses one another. Now, when visitors walk into our midst, do they see a people that are busy just going and doing ministry, busy going about doing their duty, or do they find a people who are blessing one another, who are encouraging one another, who are calling and praying that God would just come and meet them right where they're at? It was so great to be out in the foyer waiting to come in and people just come up and say, I just want to pray for you. And they just stopped and they were heading one place or another and they just stopped and said, let me pray for you. That's what people need to see because that's where they see acceptance. Now, the second thing we see is that this acceptance is seen in the grace that's extended to foreigners. Now, if we want to be a field of dreams for people, then we must be a place that accepts. Now, we do that through uh, the fellowship that we have as a church, but we also do it as we extend grace 
to those who are not like ourselves. Now, the text tells us, if you were to look through the four chapters of the book of Ruth, we see that nine times the author says that Ruth is the Moabitess, or Ruth is from Moab. Now, I don't know what Ruth might have been thinking if she was reading this book, but if she was sitting there, she would say, why do they keep calling me Ruth from Moab, Ruth the Moabitess? In fact, even in verse 10, if you were to look, she says to Boaz that I am a foreigner. This is the label that she has. Now, to be called Ruth the Moabitess or from Moab would not be something that would be praiseworthy. In fact, it's amazing that it was something that was probably even a knock on who she was. Now, why? Well, we learned in week one that Moab was a place of great sin. And Moab was full of disobedient people. We know that the Moabites did not serve the God of Israel, but they served a God named Chemosh, and they worshipped him. And we learned that they weren't just disobedient, but they were depraved. Moab was known for all kinds of gross sexual perversion. And because Chemosh was a God who loved uh, the things of sex, but not the wonderful blessing that comes from that union, he would ask that children, infants, would be sacrificed to the fire. These were depraved people. And of course, as a result of their depravity, they were people that were heading for damnation. They were heading for damnation. They found themselves, because they were not worshiping the God of Israel, they found themselves as being a people who were hated by God. God said that if a Moabite entered into uh, the uh, nation of Israel, that ten generations would have to pass away before they would enter into the temple and the worship of Israel. This was amazing. God did not like these people. They were so sinful and His holiness cried out against their sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, that adds a whole bunch to Ruth being called the Moabitess. Maybe today you find yourself being labeled because of something. Maybe it's because of your sin. Maybe it's because of something your family did. Maybe it's because of a mistake you've made. Learn from Ruth that Ruth takes that and she doesn't push that away. She says, don't call me a Moabitess. She doesn't say that. She just continues to live a life of faithfulness. And maybe you're remembered for things as a youth, and maybe you're remembered for the dumb mistakes that you made. Don't try to talk those away. You just serve God faithfully. Now, the text says that grace was shown. How are we to see that within our own body? This church continues to grow beyond measure, and we're so thankful for it. But I want to encourage our people with something. As God continues to bring people here, we are, by nature, a Caucasian suburban church. As we continue to see the Chicagoland area move, we find ourselves bringing in more people. Now, the people that we're bringing in, as you look around, we're not multi-ethnic. We're Caucasian. But I'm going to tell you something. As God continues to grow us, I pray that God will bring in all of the nations into this place. I pray that we won't be a white church, but we will be a church full of all kinds of people with all kinds of accents. But not only foreigners in that way, but foreigners when it comes to people just like Ruth who come from a place of disobedience, depravity, and those that were heading towards damnation. You know, there's this sense in churches that we spend too much time here hanging out in our holy huddles 
that someone walks in and they don't look like us. Someone walks in and they don't talk like us. Maybe some four-letter words come out of their mouth. Maybe they're divorced. Maybe they've got some issues. Maybe they've got a child out of wedlock. Whatever it is, they're not like us. And what do we do? We look down our noses at them and we say, well, you know what? Go ahead and clean that up. And when you get that cleaned up, come on back. You know, right now it's probably not good. You, you would cause trouble within the church. You know what? Go for a while. Maybe come back later and we'll deal with you. I want us to understand something very clear. If we want to be a field of dreams, we must be a place of acceptance. So what does that mean? Now, in a, in a world that finds mainline denominations walking away from biblical truth and accepting all kinds of people in their lifestyle, where's the balance in that, Tim? Where do we find the balance? The balance is, is that we call all people to repentance. And we say, you want to worship here? Wonderful. You come. But if, that, if by your coming, you are saying this, I want to get right with God. I want to get right with God and we're going to preach the word and we're going to say that certain lifestyles are sin. That if you're cheating, if you're, if you're living a life of idolatry, if you're living a life of materialism or living in a state of adultery, that you are in a pattern of sin. We're going to preach that and we're going to pound our pulpits about that. But we are going to show the grace of God while we do that. And we're going to say just like Ruth, I am a person that comes from a disobedient people. I am full of depravity. And because of that, I am heading, I was heading towards damnation. But Ephesians chapter 2 says that it was not because I reformed myself, but it was because God came and it says, but God, because of his amazing love and mercy for us, made us alive with Christ. He made us alive. So the next time you look at someone who's had an affair, you look at someone who's had issues in their life, and you want to just look down your nose and say, who do they think they are? How do they think they can get involved in our church? You remember you were dead in your trespasses and sin as well. And it was by the grace of God that he saved you. And that's the same grace that is going to cover that person's sins and disobedience. The next thing we see is that this field of dreams involves, secondly, a place of access. It involves a place of access. Now, the text tells us that Ruth enters into this dialogue with Boaz. They find themselves together. Now, the text tells us that Boaz, again, in my translation, hops out of the truck, is looking around, and he looks over at this field, he says, things are going well. He looks over here at this field, and he says, things are going fine here. He looks over here, things are going well over here, they look good. Hey, Bobby, how's the softball team over there? We're doing good? Good. Glad to hear the softball team's doing well. And he looks over, and his gaze falls upon a woman. And he says in the King James, I love it, whose damsel is this? In the uh, Tim version, it's, okay, uh, who's the hottie? Who's that lady over there? What's her name? Now, we know that uh, from scholars that Boaz was probably an older man. He was a relative of Elimelech. They believe that he was probably 50 years of age, where they believe that Ruth was probably in her early 20s. There was an age difference. And he says, whose young woman is this? Now, Boaz goes and asks the question to his overseer. Now, the Hebrew says that this local overseer that's working for Boaz was a young man. I want to call him Johnny College. He comes out. He's probably interning, probably the summer job. He's got his clipboard all excited. And he says, boss, I knew exactly who she is. I'm doing a good job. And he says, okay, Johnny, who is it? Johnny says, hey, that's, that's Ruth. Remember we heard Naomi came back, Elimelech's wife? 
They came back and she brought back her daughter-in-law. Remember, Elimelech died in Moab and Malon and Kilion. They died as well. Well, here is Ruth, the wife of one of the boys, and they've come back. Now, remember, she's a foreigner. Remember, she's got nothing that would be of any service to Boaz. So he begins to inquire about her. What has she been doing? Now, look at verse 7. Here we see not only who she is, but listen to what it says at the end of verse 7. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. The Hebrew dialogue there is what's going on. We learn that this is a picture of her character, that she is a hard worker. It was known back in the days that not all women worked hard. Of course, that's the case in our days as well, just like there are men who don't work hard. But this was a woman who found herself in a jam. And as we learned last week, she put her nose to the grindstone and she served her mother-in-law by going and getting food. Now, what happens? This access leads to some things. First of all, it leads to a direction. It leads to a direction. In verse 8 it says, So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow after the girls. This is what Boaz says. He says this. All right. You're not to go anywhere else, Ruth. I like who you are. I like what I've heard about you. I want you to stay here. Here's the parameters of where you need to go get food. You don't need to go anywhere else because I've got everything that you need. Now think about that for a moment. Isn't that what God does with us as well? Isn't that the job of the church? The church is not only to equip the, ser- uh, the works of ser- uh, equip the church for the works of service. As leadership, we're called to do that. But we're also to give direction. Each and every week we enter into this place and we go to our Sunday school classes and our small groups. And what do we do? We tell people, hey, stay in the field of God. Don't go to someone else's field. Don't pursue other things. Stay here with God. He's got everything that you need. And though there are going to be tempters that come and try to lead you away from the field of God, don't go anywhere else. Stay here. Now look at what he says as well. He doesn't just tell her that she can stay there, but he tells her how to glean. He says, follow behind my men. This is how you glean. Now, all throughout the text, we're going to see that Ruth probably wasn't very good at gleaning. Coming from Moab, she probably did not know what she was doing. She was probably sticking out like a sore thumb. And so what we see happen is, is he begins to tell her how to glean. Isn't that what we do here at church? We open up this word and we say, hey, this is how you live the God-honoring life. This is how you take care of your family. This is how you minister in a world that's hell-bent on everything else but God. And we teach. That's what the Great Commission is about, teaching all that Christ has commanded us to do. And that's what she do- he does. He teaches her what she needs to do. But next, we see that not only that, that it's not just education, but there's companionship as well. He says, hey, hang out with the young girls who are gleaning as well. Hang out with them. And what Boaz does is he brings forth companionship. Now, God brings the church together. And God doesn't just say, all right, I'm going to educate you to stay in my field. I'm not just going to tell you all these things. But isn't it amazing as we look around that there's not just one person in here, but there's all kinds of people? Why is that? Because God knew that the Christian life was not going to be easy and we needed companionship. 
And God brings all these people. And I hope that as you enter into this fellowship, as a new visitor, as a new attender, that you would see a place that you can come in and be a part of. And sometimes we do a great job with that. And other times, body of Christ, we struggle greatly with that. And we need to always be saying, is there a Ruth who has walked into this field of dreams who needs companionship? So we see direction. Next we see that it involved protection. I couldn't find another D, so I went with the last four words, letters of the word. It involves protection. Some of you got that. Look at what he says next. He says, I've told the men not to touch you. This is Boaz showing his authority. I wonder if he pointed out to the men, maybe there were some wise guys in his group, maybe those that he knew would give the whistle to a nice-looking lady as she passed by, or maybe say some derogatory things. And he looks and he points to Ruth and he says, I want to make it abundantly clear, everyone, no one touches her. It's protection. And he says, I don't want her to be harassed. I don't want her to be talked badly upon. They say later on, don't rebuke her. You don't mess around with this Ruth. She's special. Leave her alone. Let her be. In the time of the law, we know that the law was given that they were to leave the corners of their fields for those that would come, the fatherless, the widows, and the foreigners, that they would come and they would glean, they would take, and this was the food pantry, if you will, the welfare system of the nation of Israel. But we know throughout history that in rabbinical teaching that this was not always the case. That there were people that would come and glean and they would find themselves and there were crimes of rape, crimes of assault that would take place. That landowners would allow for people that were coming to try to have their needs taken care of that they would be abused. And Boaz takes care of it. He says, you know what? I know it's scary out there and I want to make it clear. No one touches her. How true is that of us as Christians we find ourselves being prowled, uh, having an enemy prowling around us. The Bible says because he's seeking to devour us and he's wanting to destroy us in any way that he can. And I will tell you, by the very nature of you sitting in this place, declares the protection of Almighty God. Because you have an enemy who wants you dead. And it is by God's grace that he says you are protected. He says, even though there's a lion in this place, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're protected. Next, we see that it wasn't just protection, but satisfaction. Look at the next part of the verse. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. Now, Boaz is only mandated by the Mosaic law to allow her to glean. But we see so much more going on. By law, he was only to allow her to pick up some food. But he takes care of her. He protects her. He guides her. And now it says that he begins to give her water. He begins to satisfy her. Anytime she would want a drink, she could have it. Now, if she was not to get drinks from the jars that the men had filled there in the field, she would have to go to someone else's field, go to some nearby creek or stream to get water, which would open her again up to abuse of all kinds. But it doesn't just end there. Not only satisfaction, but communion. Look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain and she ate all that she wanted and had some left over. It was said in one of the commentaries that never in their reading had ever a gleaner been invited into the master's home. 
And here Boaz says, not only will I give you protection, not only will I guide you, not only will I allow you to drink from my jars, but I want you to come at mealtime and come sit with me. And not only does he do that, but he takes from his own plate and he begins to feed her and take care of her. You know, here we look at this connection between us and Ruth. Here we are a people that are from a disobedient land. We are people who are depraved. We are people who are on our way to hell. And what does God do? He comes in and by law he has to do nothing. By law he doesn't have to lift his finger. But what does God do as the heavenly Boaz? God comes in and he says, I will guide you to the ways of everlasting. I will protect you from the evil one. I will give you the satisfaction and I will commune with you. If you don't believe that, listen to the words of one of the greatest writings ever written, Psalm 23. And begin to picture this Boaz in relationship with Ruth in our relationship relationship with our heavenly father the lord is my shepherd i shall not be in want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside quiet waters he restores my soul he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. There's the satisfaction. And he says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I hope you know that you've got a good shepherd who comes and He satisfies and He protects and He gives direction. And greater than that, He sits down with us and He breaks bread. And He says, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of Me. And He wants to remind us that we are in communion with Him. Now, we would look and we'd say, wow, Boaz is amazing. Boaz is taking care of everything. Boaz is a great guy, but look at what it says in verse 12. It's not Boaz who takes credit for this, because when we are in the field of dreams, we need to understand something. Just because God uses us to do great things, don't ever think that it's us who does the work. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at what it says. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He doesn't say, man, aren't you lucky that you showed up and you found me, Boaz. Aren't you glad that you found refuge under my arm of protection? He doesn't say that. We need to be very careful, especially us as leaders of a church, that we don't begin to say, well, look at the church that I've built. Or look at the messages that I preach or the counseling that I've done. Aren't they lucky to have someone like me? But like Boaz, we say it's all about God. It's all about God. So how are we to respond? I need to close this thing out. We're short on time. The final thing we see in this field of dreams is a place of amazement. It's a place of amazement. The first two points are about Boaz. The third point is about Ruth. Would she see this grace and she see it shown to her and would she turn away from it? Maybe she would be shown this grace and she would find herself maybe saying, all right, I'll accept the food, but I really don't want to accept any kind of relationship with this guy, so I'm just going to accept part of it. Or would she accept it with open arms and say... Thanks be to God. 
He has taken care of me. And out of that, I am going to live a life of gratitude. What does she do? Because that, we need to know that because if we want to be taught how to respond to God's grace, because there are many people who will hear about the grace of God, that you are a sinful person. And before a holy God, you have found that you are on the way towards damnation and hell. And because of that and because of our sin, we find ourselves in the greatest problem that mankind has ever seen. But God, because of His amazing love for us, has showered His grace and mercy upon us that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And by hanging on that cross, He shed the blood for the remission of me, a sinner's sins. And as a result of that, I can have eternal life and be an heir with Christ and a son of God. And because of that, I have a choice that needs to be made. I can either say, no, I want to live the way I want to live, and I can... I don't want anything to do with the field that's involved with your field of dreams, God. Or I can accept it and say, you know what, I, I need it. I need the, the salvation. I need the food that, that this guy's got. So I'll take it, but I'm not really going to change. Or I can like Ruth does, because Ruth picks answer number three. What does she do? She says, I'm going to accept it wholeheartedly. And I'm going to accept this grace. And I'm going to live a life of gratitude as a result. Well, what does that involve? We see that this amazement, first of all we see it should overwhelm us it should overwhelm us look at what her response is at this she bowed down with her head to the ground or face to the ground and she exclaimed why have i found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner and what it tells us is ruth gets low understand this she falls to the ground she can't even look at the one who's given her grace understand this the grace of god should never bring us to a place of pride don't ever think, well, hey, I got the grace and you didn't. Na 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 boo boo. No. It's not about that. It's not about that. It is God taking you and all the sins and all the struggles you have and He blesses you with gifts unspeakable. And she exclaims. It says she cried out in another translation. She says, why have I found such favor? You know, that should be the question we wake up every time in the morning asking ourselves. Why have I found such favor in your eyes? You know, what we find is because of the situations in our life, we begin to bellyache to God. And God, why is my back hurting today? God, why is this not working out the way it needs to? God, why? God, why? Instead of waking up and saying, God, Without you, I would be nothing. Without you, I would be dead in my trespasses and sin and on the way to hell. A great song was written and it said this, My faithful Father, enduring friend, your tender mercy is like a river with no wind. It, overflow, it overwhelms me. It covers my sin. Each time I come into your presence, I stand in wonder once again. Your grace, it still amazes me. Your love is still a mystery each day. I fall on my knees because your grace still amazes me. Brothers and sisters, does the grace of God still amaze you? Do you remember that day where you bowed your knee and you bowed to the lordship and saviorhood of Jesus Christ? And you remembered that your sins were washed away. Do you remember that day where you walked into that water and you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the grace of God from that day forward has covered you day in and day out. Do you still marvel at that matchless grace of Jesus? I will contend that one of the reasons why our witness is not what it is in this world today is because we have forgotten our first love. We have forgotten what Christ has done for us. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God showed His love and His mercy 
and He saved us. Are you still blown away by that? Does that move in your heart to lead you to a place of praise? Secondly, we see that it validates our obedience. It validates our obedience. Now, the grace of God, please hear me, is unmerited. There's nothing we can do for the grace of God. It's not by works that anyone could boast. But what we see is Boaz begins to say, hey, you're being blessed. And this is why, look at verses 11 and 12. I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you've left father and mother and your homeland and have come to live with a people you did not know. Listen to what he says. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May he richly reward you, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've taken refuge. I pray that God would bless you, and he would do it to encourage your hearts. We all need encouragement. We all need times where we say, God, I hope I'm doing what is right, and God blesses you. You have blessed my wife and I beyond measure as the preacher of this church. You keep coming up and with words of affirmation and little gifts, you come and you say, God bless you in what you're doing and, and what the ministry that you're having in this place. And I will tell you, God's favor doesn't come because I'm a good preacher or a bad preacher. It comes because God loves me. But it validates the obedience of even though my body hurts this morning, that I am called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what is validated by the favor of God. Next we see that it involves... Um, It produces an outpouring. It produces an outpouring. What do we do with this grace? It says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have given me comfort. You have spoken kindly to your servant, even though I don't have the standing of any of your servant girls. When we have the grace of God, we are given the charge to verbalize it. When was the last time you told anybody the grace that God saved you with? When was the last time you opened up your mouth and you cried out to someone and said, you know what? I was a drunk before I met Jesus. Before I met Jesus, I was in an affair. Before I met Jesus, I couldn't get away from pornography. Before I met Jesus, I cheated on my taxes. Before I met Jesus, I was a liar and a thief. Before I met Jesus, I did everything wrong and nothing right. When was the last time you humbled yourself and went to another person and said, if it wasn't for Jesus, I would be dead? When was the last time you did that? I know it's been a while for me, but that's what God's grace should do. It should create an outpouring. And finally, it it allows an opportunity to serve. Verse 15 and 16, she gets up. This grace has been shown to her. We don't just sit in God's grace. We move on. It says she gets up to glean. Boaz gave orders to the men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Don't put your Bibles or anything yet. This is very important. Maybe today you say, God, I want to be in your field of dreams. God, I want to be in a place of blessing, but I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know what decisions I should be making. Ruth was not good at gleaning. She did not know what she was doing, but do you know what Boaz does? She goes out and does the best job she can. And Boaz goes, come here, guys. I want, to, I want to tell you something. Hey, she doesn't look probably like she knows what she's doing very well, but here's the thing. Don't embarrass her, but begin to drop leaves or grain for her to pick up. And what they did is, is as they were working, they didn't make sure they got every bit of it, but they left what they call handfuls of purpose for her. Let me tell you something. The grace of God, when you don't know what you're doing, do you know what God does? He sends people before you. And He says, you know what? Don't grab everything, but drop a little bit so she can take some home with her. 
You know, we may not know how to do ministry. We may not know what decisions we need to make. But God calls us to glean in his fields. And as a result of that, when we come to a crossroads where we don't know where to go, what we are to do is just do the job God's called us to and then wait for God to drop little by little before us. It says at the end of verse 16 that she had an epah full of grain. That is a bountiful harvest for a young woman to bring home. When you're in the field of dreams, in God's field, you will find out that you will not just come home with a little bit, but because God loves you and he cares for you, he will allow you to go home and to send you home with a bounty of a harvest. And why does he do it? So that she could be an encouragement to her mother-in-law. Who does she take it home to? She takes it home to Naomi. The grace of God is that we are given a bountiful harvest. And as a result of that, we take that. And what do we do with it? We're an encouragement to others. That is what God calls us to. And that is this field of grace that we see. Next week we'll look at more. Let's go ahead and close our time in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we have seen your grace this morning. We have seen your grace seen in the little boys that were dedicated here. You are the giver of life. And Father, we know that you are a God of grace. You are a God that takes care of our needs. And Lord, we know that in our church there are struggles, there's troubles, there's difficulties. Father, we know that there's issues. But Lord, I pray that we would remember what you've done for us. And Lord, that we would remember that you are in control, that you are working all things out for the good of those whom you love and are called according to your purpose. And Lord, I pray that that would be an encouragement to our hearts, that we would take this grace And we would share it with all who will hear. So, Father, I pray as we leave this place that we would be a people who are filled with the grace of God. And that because of that grace, we would be able to share it. As Ruth shares her grain with Naomi, we too would be able to share the grace of God with all those we come in contact with. We pray your blessing upon the rest of our day as we leave this place and go to a time of more learning in Sunday school. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go and fellowship with one another.